Sonic Stories, the show where music, human performance, and life intersect and are shared through personal stories. My name is Benny Collins, and on this show, I invite a guest to choose three songs that have shaped their life in one way or another, and to share the stories behind these songs and the meaning that they hold for them. Outside of this podcast, I work in the field of sport and performance psychology as a mental performance coach, where I support performers such as athletes, performing artists, and executives on working through any mental obstacles they might be facing, as well as help them optimize their strengths to fully realize their performance. This conversation uh, for this week was very unique. And I guess before I get to that, typically I do share some sort of interesting finding or uh, an article or some sort of mental performance tip at the top of the show right at this time. But this conversation was so rich. It was it was, it was very, very full of different ideas and topics and themes. And it was just really fascinating. So I actually am not going to plug a little bit of uh, the sports like world at this time because I want to leave space for that. Another reason why this conversation was, was unique was because it was the second take. Uh, this guest and I, I'll introduce in just a moment, she and I recorded our first conversation or the first round of the interview about six or seven weeks ago. She was in town with her husband for a wedding, um, friends of ours. So uh, we were at the same wedding and everything, spent some time after. It was really great. Had them over for dinner. But um, I had some tech issues. My external hard drive was corrupted, lost everything, lost all sorts of content from grad school, which was kind of a rough 72 hour period, just processing all the things that I lost, the notes, um, articles that were helpful, different assessment tools that I do frequently use with some of the folks that I work with. So it was, it was very frustrating. And along with that, my computer, I had a MacBook Air, that also decided to kick the bucket. And so we are back with a new machine. Unfortunately, like I mentioned, I lost all that content, including past recordings of episodes and interviews, including the one that Alex and I had just done at that time. And so back with a new machine, new setup, all is well in the world. But because I lost that, we did a second take. Uh, that first uh, first time was actually in person, was here at my home, we recorded live. This one was over Zoom. You would think, oh, maybe it's not as good because they had to go across screens instead of being you know, sitting several feet apart. To be honest, like we didn't really skip a beat. This conversation was definitely longer. It's by far the longest conversation I've had in any of the episodes. And I think it's just the fact of just how awesome of a person Alex is, the things that she brought to the table related to the songs and the stories. It was a very winding conversation, but everything that she was sharing was very insightful. And just this per perspective that she has in the world is very fascinating and intriguing to me. And I definitely align with a lot of what she had shared, if not everything, if not everything, for calling it what it is. But um, but yeah, I will just introduce this person. So Alex Gonzalez is my guest for this week's episode. She's an executive presence coach and PhD candidate in communication studies at Northwestern University. Her research aims to help individuals and companies use personality assessments more effectively and more honestly. Alex loves helping others find the right words almost as much as she loves the challenging of learning something new. When she's not working, she likes to spend time outdoors, baking in her kitchen, and dancing pretty much anywhere. And so I will leave it at that. Great conversation, great guests. Looking forward to all of you hearing it and just learning about what you may pull from it. Feel free to reach out. I'd love to hear what you get from this conversation with Alex. There were so many fascinating tidbits that she had shared related to the stories, and it very easily could have gone on for another hour, without a doubt. So without further ado, no more preamble. Here's Alex. Good morning, Alex. Hi, welcome to the show. How are you? 
I'm great. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here for our take two after my extreme tech failures that lost our first recording. It's probably better for your listeners because I imagine I'll be a little bit more coherent on take two, you know? Right. Yeah. No, I mean, incoherent or coherent. I'm here for all of it. I love it all. It's a good conversation. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, you know the drill. Let's let's do this thing. Let's get to these songs. Let's start with Gasolina by Daddy Yankee. And this is, I, I don't remember exactly when this song came out. I want to say it was like around middle school. Mm-hmm. And so can you walk me through your first memories with Daddy Yankee? Yeah. Um, let me set the scene for your listeners first, because I chose this song... Yes, because of the song itself and sort of like the role it played in my life, but also as a sort of stand-in for like reggaeton music in general. So I was born in Miami, Florida to Cuban parents and like my whole family is Cuban. Um, Most of the people in my family who are older than me were actually born in Cuba. And so when I was nine, we moved to Columbus, Ohio, which was a huge culture shock because I went from being this like Cuban American girl in a primarily Cuban American space. Everybody spoke Spanish. Like I really used English at school and that was it. And then suddenly we moved to Columbus, Ohio. I I go to this Irish Catholic school where there's almost no Latinos. Um, My best friend, we met in fifth grade and she's from Venezuela. And my mom heard her mom speaking Spanish in an open house and like, lined for her and <laughs> was like, we're going to be friends now. Um, so there was not a whole lot of Latino culture in Columbus, Ohio. And the kids in my school were not the nicest when I first got there. Um, I think it was really like my first experience with difference, I'll say, with like any sort mm-hmm. of ethnic cultural difference. You, you felt, it felt weird. It felt weird to be a Latino in Ohio after that part of my identity being this like totally normal thing in Florida. So Gasolina comes out, I think 2004, cause I want to say it was like right around my seventh, eighth grade. Sure. And it was a big deal. Like all of the kids at my school, the ones who had like made fun of me for speaking Spanish or who like didn't want to know anything about being Latino. Suddenly this song comes out it's really popular. Everybody wants to sing Gasolina, right? Yes. So it's sort of, it's like two things happened. On the one hand, suddenly this identity that was not cool that I had was kind of cool and had street cred. Like kids wanted me to like translate reggaeton lyrics for them. And everybody wanted to listen to Gasolina at the school dance. It was a Catholic school. So they obviously were not going to play it. And the second thing that happened is I got this like direct line to my culture that I didn't have before. In Ohio, I had my best friend and her family and my family. That was kind of it. It was like the most Latino culture that I was ever going to be around. And you know what middle school is like, like, especially at that age, as much as you love your family, like you don't want to hang out with your parents. They're not cool anymore. Like you're trying to be cool. And so reggaeton gave me this like really personal, really direct connection to my culture. And yeah, reggaeton 
comes primarily from Puerto Rico, but I have a lot of family living in, in Puerto Rico and I spent a lot of time there growing up. So it felt suddenly like, oh, here's this like easy, fun, cool way for me to hear Spanish, to feel like I'm connected to my culture. And so I just remember Gasolina really sort of kicking that off and also kicking off then me exploring music on my own. I feel like growing mm. up, I didn't do a whole lot of like, I had friends who were like always finding like the next band or, you know, you'd watch, was it TLC, was it TLC? like the top 20 music videos? Are you thinking of VH1? Maybe, maybe that's what I'm thinking about. Or, or like or MTV, there's MTV as well. Yeah, and they would have like Saturday morning or Sunday morning, like countdown of the top 20 songs, right? Yeah. Um, I had like friends who were into that and I was into music because my friends were into music, but I sort of individually never really felt like, oh, I'm going to go like look up the lyrics to this and like find this new artist. And when Gasolina came out and I got this like cultural connection to music in a space where I felt so starved for Latino culture, it also sort of kickstarted then like, okay, now I'm a person who's into music and like, I'm going to go find the newest reggaeton song and like buy the CD and share it with my friends. Um, so yeah, right. it's a song that it, it did a lot for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's like three different like path pathways of questions that I'm, that I want to ask from that. But one is when you're talking about middle school and the social dynamics with friends and social dynamics with other kids and like around the very ripe age of you know, 12, 13, 14, when we start to realize who we are, get an identity, realize that we don't want to be super close to our parents or even sometimes our siblings all the time, just establishing oneself. Did you feel like you had to like represent in a way with Gasolina or did you feel like you had to be wary of people's motives when they're like, oh, I like this new song by Daddy Yankee. Alex, tell me about this song. Like as if you were like the representative for reggaeton. Yeah. That's a fascinating question. I think there was a little bit of caution. And I really, I can't speak for like all Latinos or even all Cubans, but I will say that at least my family is incredibly proud to be Cuban. And I was raised by a mom who was like, we are Cuban, being Cuban is awesome, being Cuban is the best. And so when we moved to Columbus, Ohio, I remember there was a moment in fourth grade, I think we were like cleaning up the classroom or wiping down our desks or something. And I tried to make some sort of joke about Cubans being like super uptight about cleaning because I come from like a history of germaphobes. I don't even remember, but it was the sort of comment that like in my household would have made people laugh, right? Or maybe even right. in Miami, if I had like other Cuban friends, they would have laughed. But I said this in a St. Bridget of Kildare classroom in Columbus, Ohio, to a room full of kids who did not understand the reference. And I remember feeling embarrassed, like immediately embarrassed. Oh, they don't know what being Cuban is. Oh, suddenly I feel so different from them. So it was sort of like a two contradictory things happened at once. Whereas like, I, I did feel really proud to be Cuban. I think I was probably like obnoxiously proud about that in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And I also did feel that sort of caution 
around sharing that because sometimes there'd be like, you know, a kid on the bus who wants me to translate the lyrics of this reggaeton song. And he was a great guy and he didn't mean anything bad by it. And it was actually like a cool way for us to connect. Yeah. But then the kids who, if my mom offered them a ride home from like volleyball practice, she would say, I don't want to be in the Spanish people car, mm. which is like Ugh. by far not the meanest thing somebody can say, but I was proud on the one hand, but I started to learn sometimes that that pride or at least being really like vocal and explicit about that pride sometimes not got me into trouble but like people responded in a way that didn't feel good um and that's yeah sort of an interesting thing about latinidad your listeners can't see me right but i like passes non-latina all the time i'm like super super fair skin covered head to toe in freckles my dad's a redhead so there was also then the question of like oh if i don't say anything and nobody sees my last name then they don't know but the minute that i say something and i like stake a claim to this identity mm -hmm. there's pride there but then there's like immediately criticism and concern about how people are perceiving me yeah it's a rock and a hard place. It's such a hard place to exist in because on one hand, it's like you want to establish, like put that that pride flag down of who you are, where you come from, your heritage, but then also realizing that it can come with the sacrifice of an elevated social status as a 12-year-old kid when oftentimes that's all you want is social status and to, and to be like a, a cool person and to be someone who's cute, who the, the cute so-and-so is like looking at across the room in science class or like good volleyball play, like whatever it is. So yeah. that's that's tough for a kid. And like, I, I applaud you for like having, like that's like a special kind of awareness or foresight or moxie or whatever you want to call it to like have that recognition of that middle space that you had to operate in. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I'm talking about it with like 20 years of hindsight, which helps. Like, <laughs> yeah. I do think when I, whenever I talk to people about childhood and like identity stuff, looking back, it actually, I think was kind of awesome that one, my experiences with difference were so mild, like nothing really terrible happened, right? I think the worst thing that happened Good. is someone like, TP'd my house once. And two, it was actually kind of helpful to start experiencing that and sort of dealing with that at age nine, because then mm -hmm. by the time I got to like age 19, I was like, oh, I have been navigating this sort of liminal in-between space for 10 years. Like I'm actually starting to feel really comfortable in, in the boundaries and in the in-betweens. So looking yeah, back, like actually kind of nice that I got an early introduction into those sorts of things in a way that like ended up, I think, supporting me psychologically and not, you know, like totally ruining me. Do you consider yourself an observant person? Ooh, yes and no. Yes, in that I think I tend to be very aware of my surroundings and can focus on and see a lot of details that maybe other people don't. But, but I am also despistada, which is uh, sort of like a, a Spanish word that means like airheaded or, you know, like, sure. yeah, I'm observant, but you could still pull off like a really big surprise party for me and I would never know. Okay. So like, like a, a, a modest amount of being spacey, maybe. Yes. 
Okay. Yeah. I, I just asked because I think, and like, I think that's something where you and I are similar or we align where it's like navigating different kinds of spaces with different kinds of people being someone who is not in the majority. You just naturally develop the skill of being observant because you just notice behaviors and tendencies that people have when you're near them, when you're not near them, or just all that kind of stuff. So that's that's what I was curious about because it's something that like I often think about and I think being the youngest of five kids, I'm always looking up and, and checking out my siblings and what they're doing and how they're acting. But then also being um, a black person in majority white spaces, it's like also noticing my status in that room or in that place or anything. So it's, yeah, just something I'm curious about. Yeah, I do feel hyper vigilant about other people's reactions. Yes. Right? And I feel like part of that's personality. Like you're the youngest, I'm the oldest, and I have five younger siblings. So there is also this like protective streak that I have. Mm. And I'm just like a people pleaser, right? Like firstborn girl, child of like immigrant on one side, child of immigrants on the other side. Like I'm yeah. out here trying to like achieve dreams and make my parents proud, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, and so I think like with that people pleasing and the protective older sister stuff comes this hyper vigilance where, yeah, I think sometimes I'm like too attuned to people's facial yeah. expressions, tone of voice, like, and I find myself, especially if I'm in a really white space, like the kind of white space where even I don't belong there. Like they're so white that white Latinos are sort of out of the the inner circle. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that I like stand differently. I might gesture differently. Even yeah. the words I choose or the tone of my voice changes. Cause I don't know how to how to describe it. It is sort of like a a tightening or a constricting of my personality yeah. and my energy to try to take up as little space as possible and just like make everybody comfortable. Yes. You're just penetrating my soul in so many different ways with that. I totally, I totally get it. It's yeah. And that sucks. Like when it comes down to it, like that just genuinely sucks having to minimize your presence and minimize your existence. And, and like you said, how much space you take up. That's a bummer. Yeah. It takes a lot of energy. Right. And then mm -hmm. it also just like, it doesn't set you up to be successful or happy. Right. I feel like as an adult trying to work through all of the psychological stuff adults want to work through, I'm like, oh man, actually my sort of like people pleasing and being hyper aware of how I'm affecting other people gets in my way most of the time. Um, and that's what was really special about Gasolina and about reggaeton in general is when that song comes on and I'm on the dance floor with people, it's the complete opposite. Now, my music is playing in a language that I speak in like beats that my body has grown up dancing to. So instead of constricting and getting small, you actually get way bigger. I think reggaeton, especially in the context of like middle school parties, allowed me to take up so much space and feel so free and happy and like proudly expressively Latina in, in a way that no other space in middle school let me, let me be. Right. Which I think is like a milestone moment. Like here's a, here's a thought experiment. How do you feel like you would be presenting yourself 
And like, what level of confidence do you feel like you would have if you didn't have those moments like you did with Gasolina on the dance floor as a middle school girl and like developing? Do you feel like you'd still have like that shoulders back, chest up, chin up type of mentality if you didn't have instances like that, that kind of like set it in stone when you were growing up? Yeah, that's such a good question. So I think if I like had stayed in Ohio, because we left Ohio when I was 14, moved to Tampa. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Big moment. Very happy about that move. Um, I mean, not that Florida is like that much better, but at least it, it felt like home. <laughs> For but sure. I think if I hadn't had gasolina, I think I actually would have. Okay, two things could have happened. I think I could have mm -hmm. continued to shrink and just been a much sort of quieter person. Like, I think there is a world in which I stay in Ohio long enough and I kind of lose this pride or connection that I have to my culture. I also think this sort of like pride or shoulders back, chest out, like this is who I am. I think that that probably would have just gotten directed to something else, right? So I think I would have yeah. cared less about being Cuban and cared a lot more about being a volleyball player or cared a lot more about being like, I don't know, an intelligent kid in the class or a theater kid. Like I, th I think I probably just would have channeled that into other identities, um, which really would have been a shame because the older I get, the more family matters to me. You know, my husband and I did our honeymoon in Cuba and we were able to meet my great aunt who my grandfather's younger sister, who's never left Cuba ever. And, you know, like, I guess in a way, thank you to all of the mean kind of racist kids in Ohio, because <laughs> I think that sort of helped me like latch onto and care about Cuban identity in a way that maybe if I'd stayed in Miami where that was sort of the norm, I wouldn't have appreciated it as much. Yeah. Good things can come from bad experiences. Have I told you about the um, Say My Name, Destiny's Child thing in middle school? Oh, uh, I don't know. I think I think you may have, but please. I just, you know, we just, I think it's a great, <laughs> it's a great example of music being used in a way that hurt my feelings, but that ultimately was fine. So mm -hmm. uh, like I said, right, I was raised Cuban. And my mom, especially, my mom grew up in a really traditional Cuban household and I'm her firstborn. And you know how parents are usually stricter with their first kid. So I got a lot of those sort of rules. And one of the rules was that good Cuban girls don't shave their legs, okay? This is sixth grade. A lot of girls have started shaving their legs at St. Bridget of Kildare. I have not been allowed to shave my legs and I'm Cuban. So I really had legs that looked like a gorilla, like super hairy. And you had to wear, it was Catholic school, a plaid skirt with a white short sleeve button down with a little Peter Pan collar. So there was like no hiding the fact that I couldn't shave my legs. Sure. And it's November, December, we're in our school gym that has a stage where all of our like big plays and shows take place. So we're on the stage practicing for a Christmas musical and there's some break. And all of a sudden I hear three boys in my grade start singing Say My Name by Destiny's Child, but they're not singing Say My Name. They're singing Shave Your Legs, Shave Your Legs. They're looking kind of hairy, getting kind of scary or something like that. <laughs> you know what? The, the rhythm was great. Their voices sounded great. They really, they were singing loudly and filling up the room. 
and little sixth grade Alex immediately started bawling. My teacher like came up to hug me. I went to a super small school. So it was like all over the school by the end of the day. I went home crying. I was like, mom, listen to what happened to me because you wouldn't let me shave my legs. And I think great parenting move. She was like, you're not shaving your legs tonight because I don't want these boys to know it's because of them, but you can shave your legs this weekend for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I could not listen to say my name for like two years, really, without sort of feeling all of those like really terrible shame, embarrassment feelings that came up in that moment. And I remember there was a point, I think in eighth grade, where I must have been listening to like, were iPods around then? I think I had like an iPod mini. I must've been listening to my iPod mini or like playing a CD or something and Say My Name came on. And it was the first time that I heard that song and like, didn't feel shame or, or didn't have, you know, I didn't go right back to that embarrassing moment in sixth grade. Um, yeah. And it felt really empowering. And so then to this day, when I listen to Say My Name, I'm like, oh, I love this song. I'm so glad I can listen to it now without <laughs> collapsing on the floor and crying. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Those boys. Like Those boys. Very, very creative bullying. Yeah. I mean, like you said, like they they must have been had good rhythm. You know, the lyrics were uh well spaced, like the right syllables. Yeah. They they like yeah. really put thought into it, you know, they must have practiced. <laughs> yeah, yeah, clearly. <laughs> oh, that sucks though. But I am glad that you were able to to like extract the negativity in that terrible experience from that song because that song is a great song and it's it's like it's very much an anthem i would say yeah so yeah you know positive and negative experiences with music in middle school it's true it's true i think we just got a bonus song which i am here for okay well let's let's keep moving on here let's get to our our next song that funny feeling by bo burnham from his Inside album, which was written, shot, recorded during lockdown. He was alone, incredibly alone at his place. And then I think it came out like like early-ish last year, but that album had many good songs. But why this one? Yeah, um, you're right. The three songs I've chosen are so different. I think it's a good encapsulation of like who I am as a music listener, because I do sort of feel very like all over the place and eclectic in music taste. But why that funny feeling? I mean, I wanted to include a song from inside. I knew that when I was thinking Mm -hmm. about picking my top three. And I said this the the first time we recorded this, but inside is still the only piece of pandemic art that really felt like it spoke to my experience in the pandemic. And I think a lot of that has to do with age. So Bo Burnham, I think was born in 1990. I was born in 91 and like, Obviously we leave very different lives because he's this like incredibly prolific creative person, but we like grew up right with the same sort of culture and events. Like I remember when he got big on YouTube. Yeah. I always feel seen or like something about my experience is accurately reflected in a lot of Bo Burnham's work and inside really felt sort of like the peak of that. Um, Just the, when you listen to the album and we've got all of his own sort of like anxiety, depression, mental health struggles mixed with a lot of concern and a lot of fear that 
everything is like moving in the wrong direction and, and everything is really, really difficult. So there's just something about the way he mixes cultural criticism with humor, with actual really like vulnerable honesty about what's going on in his own head that spoke to me and felt like, oh, wow, all of those things were happening for me in the pandemic. Like I hit a psychological low point, right? In like late 2020, who didn't? I -hmm. was experiencing a lot of like climate anxiety. Um, We, my husband and I lived in Austin, Texas for six months during the pandemic. We moved down there for fun to be close to friends and, and to be somewhere where we didn't have to like quarantine during the winter. We could actually go outdoors. And then yeah. that freak winter storm hit. And we thankfully were able to shelter with a friend, right? But that event like really skyrocketed climate anxiety for me. Um, and I have siblings in Texas who are half black, but like visually, right? They're they're black. They move through the world as black. So I was also like mm-hmm. really concerned for them and concerned about their safety, particularly my brothers. So it's like all of these big societal cultural concerns mixed with what psychologically happens to you when your whole life changes and you have to spend a lot of time inside like all of that sort of struggle and difficulty felt wrapped up in inside to me and what i really love about inside is that it feels like Bo took all of that stuff and then through humor and music and art was able to make me feel okay about it not better like suddenly everything is roses and everything is perfect but just better so there's something about his art and that funny feeling in particular that because it's like honest discussion about the stuff that sucks sometimes and the stuff that feels hard sometimes actually makes me feel more hopeful and and more calm And the whole album is that way. But I think that funny feeling in particular does that the most for me. That totally makes sense. And I think like that's the great, I guess a couple of things to say. I think that's what makes him like a great artist is like he's able to like, it's like the perfect sandwich of those things that you said of like existential stuff with a pandemic and don't know what's going to happen. The fear of the unknown, societal issues of racism and please killing black people. But then like climate change, winter storm, like apocalypse day after tomorrow dennis quay jake gyllenhaal like all that's like terrible stuff all these things so like i think he's a very tasteful and very like you said very prolific um artist and i think one thing that really stands out that makes him special is like just making stuff that sucks funny like even even just now when you're telling the story about say my name with those with those mean boys you can like look back now and remember it and like you can literally be smiling and giggling about it it was awful it sucked you were crying to your mom but i think when we can take the negative experiences and be able to like get a little bit of distance like you know sometimes it's literal physical distance of leaving the state of ohio going somewhere else but then it's also like the emotional distance from that and like having some being able to look back and see it for what it was and not having it define you now and and yeah and then like i said just being able to laugh about it like that's that's very like medicinal for me it's like if i can have a really shitty instance that sucks but i really hope i can be able to laugh about it in some way otherwise this is gonna just eat away at me like a virus yeah and there's something really healing about putting words to difficult feelings and difficult experiences. 
And this is like the nerd in me is going to come out because I'm getting a PhD in comm studies or communication. So like, I love words, but especially during the pandemic, even when I had a great support network, I was still struggling to find the words to explain what was really happening on the inside for me. Like I, I was feeling things, but I didn't know how to put that into words. And so all of inside, like not just the music, but the whole sort of like visual movie that he made put a lot of feelings into words that I could not put into words. And so being given the language to explain how you're feeling, I think is really powerful and healing and like made me feel very seen. And from a music perspective, I am a sucker for good lyrics. I don't know how else to say it. And that funny feeling is really like calming, pleasant, instrumental music. And then what I think is like some pretty meaty, awesome lyrics the whole way through. I'm obsessed with the lyrics of this song. Like they're fun, they're quirky, they're weird, they're insightful. They give me something to like latch onto when I'm listening to the song that really calms me down. There's something about the the lyricism here that I think makes this like my favorite song of the album. It does a good job of bouncing out because yeah, like you said, it's it's very much like acoustic guitar campfire song, but really just great weird lyrics. Like I feel like anything that Bo Burnham does, it's gotta be quirky and weird. Otherwise it's not gonna be his style, which I love. Like the more weird, the better. My favorite line is 7,000 years of this, 20 more to go, or 20,000 years of this, seven more to go. I think it's 20,000 years of this, seven more to go. I remember hearing that for the first time and feeling relief. Like, I don't know what it is about that line that took all of this climate anxiety and existential dread that I had and really like put a nice bomb over it. Um, yeah. I, think I think it's probably because we've been around for 20,000 years and we only have seven years left suddenly now those seven years feel like a gift and not a pressure. Um, yeah. There's some sort of like existential stay in the moment. The present moment is the only thing that matters that that line gives to me. And mm. I don't know how much of this is like Bo's talent and how much of this is me like bringing my own stuff to this album. Inside is my go-to flying album. I have like bad flight anxiety and every time i get on a plane i turn on inside sometimes on shuffle sometimes not and i just put the whole album on repeat and that thing is playing in my ears from the moment i step onto the plane to the moment i step off of the plane yeah i I remember that which i think is amazing just with the construction of this album and the content and how meaty it is with like so many good thoughts and so many real thoughts and like the messiness and hard to describe feelings that he gets into, it just kind of guides you on like, it's constantly regulating you is what I find. I'm thinking of Bezos, I think part one, like it has like a very 80s synth, like bumping beat to it. It's kind of like a higher BPM. So it's like, okay, I feel perky in, in row 17 and seat C next to the exit row. Okay. Like it gives me that feeling of being perked up. But then and that funny feeling is just kind of like a musical hug in a way where it just kind of like, settles you and calms you but and then you know other songs pull you different directions too yeah Yeah. even the title that funny feeling i remember when i was listening to it and 
for me, I think immediately about, okay, I'm thinking about like anxiety, right? That's my go-to funny feeling probably. Um, but there's something about the use of the word funny there because it feels, how do I put this? I think funny just has a lot of different definitions and use cases and it feels so cool to me that I could look at a scary, overwhelming feeling like climate anxiety or anxiety in general or depression or dread. And I could call it, oh, that funny feeling. Like, it's kind of weird. It's kind of out of my control, but it's also this like good friend that pops up pretty frequently. Even just yeah. naming it, that funny feeling makes it feel so much less scary and so much more manageable. Um, totally. You know? Yeah. And that's what that whole album does to me. It just makes all of my feelings feel not scary and okay and manageable. Um, it is absolutely mm -hmm. like a, a regulating album. Yeah. It's very like the word disarming keeps coming to mind is that it's very disarming. And like thinking about like all the negative feelings that you'd mentioned before, like anxiety and depression and dread or, you know, conditions and or feelings, however we want to define them. But I feel like with the album and what you're describing is like thinking of them as like these like stabs or these pokes and prods, but then the album, what it does is it like takes the venom out of those different sensations and feelings that you have. So it's just like, oh yeah, I'm just like getting jabbed, but like there's that funny feeling again. I feel like shit and I can't sleep another <laughs> day in paradise, baby. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. precisely what it does for me. Um, it's really nice. I have the the vinyl. Oh, and then of course his I'm turning 30 song on this album. Inside came out 2021. I turned 30 in 2021. Uh, so it also was like this lovely little birthday anthem. Yeah, I love that song. That's a really funny song to me. Cool. Well, let's let's get to our final song of the Alex Gonzalez. EP, if we want to call it that, Blue Wave Blues by Mr. Charlie Berg. Blues, yeah. You said you got to see him, I think, shortly after, shortly after we spoke the first time you got to see him, right? Yeah, so I saw him in November. Chris and I went with a couple friends. He performed at Chop Shop, which is this, hmm. like, restaurant slash event space in Worker Park. Um, and I'd been to Chop Shop to eat but I had never been to Chop Shop for like a show. Uh, and it was, I, it was like my ideal concert experience. Okay, I want all the details possible. Yes. I'm not a like huge fan of big stadium shows. I've been to plenty of them and I always leave them feeling like, man, I really just watched that artist on like a big screen the whole time. Yeah. I feel like that's not too Agreed. different than like watching a recording of a concert and maybe I'm just not like shelling out enough to get like floor to, you know, floor seats, but I'm also just probably never going to do that. Um, so I really like, I really like intimate live music experiences. So I want a smaller venue. I want to like really feel connected to the artist and connected to everyone else who's there. And so chop shop is like pretty small venue. Um, and it was awesome, man. I felt, I felt a little old because the crowd was mostly people in their twenties. I'm not that much older than twenties. I'm 31, but still it's like the age where you start to notice, like there's a threshold. You, yeah. Like I'm not 25 threshold. anymore, you know, 
And Charlie Berg has, he's like strong Freddie Mercury vibes on stage. Um, like a lot of playful charisma. He is just absolutely adorable and talented. The whole band was amazing. Like that's what I love about intimate venues too, is I actually can get a good look at every musician. I can like watch the bassist at like really with a lot of detail, I can like watch a guitar player and pick up the chords that they're playing if I'm close enough. Right. So the whole band was great. And there's this really cute moment that's not related to the music at all, but I have to share it because it's adorable. So where the way the venue's set up, there's like, you know, the floor space is primarily where people are, but there is a small balcony above that. And Mm. The balcony will jut out. So you have, you know, sort of like left and right, a couple seats that are more noticeable. And early in the show, Charlie keeps like looking up to sort of what for him is like stage left balcony seats. He like keeps looking up there and there's an older woman there standing, like singing along to the songs. She does not sit down the whole time. She's like super energetic. And then halfway through the show, he's like, that's my mom because I think he's from Detroit. And so his mom, and I think a couple of her friends or a couple of their family members were like in that section the whole time. And it just felt, it was so sweet to watch her and how proud she was of him. And then just to watch him like look at her the whole time. And um, it was just like a really sweet, sweet moment. That felt, I made the like intimate concert experience feel even more intimate. Cause like, oh, look, the musician's mom is here. Yeah, that's yeah. super sweet. I, I I can tell, right, like, for some reason this morning, I'm feeling a little sensitive. So, like, that's making me a little bit emotional, just envisioning that. I'm just like, that. Like, what is sweeter than that? Like, she must be so proud, or the people, like, the mother, you know, friends, they must be so proud, so excited to be there, and he must feel so loved and so supported. That's amazing. Yeah, and he's, I think he's, like, in his mid-20s. The only bummer is that they did not play blue wave blues pretty sad about it i was hoping it would be the encore song because like what a better way to to send you off so many of those lyrics are like i thought you had a good time tonight or i thought you had a good time last night like that would have been the perfect ending song i think they didn't do it because they didn't have a saxophone which i kind of respect because the saxophone on this song is like my favorite part of the song obviously yeah so in that in that case, it could be considered a smart musical choice to have not played the song. Yeah, because the lyrics are great, the rest of the instruments are great, but I'm really listening to Blue Wave Blues because of the like sax solo. I hear I have songs like that too. Like if if this isn't like crafted in the way that I know it, like it's not going to feel or hit the same way. And that's the whole point of listening to it. Yeah, and that's what was cool about the show is there was one song. It's actually the first song of Charlie Berg's that I heard. I think Chris discovered it and shared it with me. It's called Chicago, Take It or Leave It. And he opened the show with that. Obviously, we're in Chicago. It was great. But the live performance of that song didn't feel that much better than the recorded version. But then there were like, I would say, 85% of the set list where I was like, oh my God, this song is like, five, 10, 20 times better live um, just because of like the energy that I think yeah. he and band brings. Um, so that was cool too, because 
Charlie Berg was in my like top five artists of Spotify wrapped. So I obviously spent a lot of time listening to him this year and it was cool to get a live version of all of those songs and to like really feel sort of how his energy in the room's energy change from song to song. Cause you can't get that when you're just listening by yourself with headphones to an album. Yes, I totally agree. Like I, with my favorite band, obviously like with their studio stuff on repeat, but then I'm like, oh, like I heard this show they did in Amsterdam last March. That was really good. I'm going to go find like some of those versions because like they're a big jazz fusion band, a lot of members in the band, which means different opportunities for solos, or maybe they took a solo in a different way. So I'm just, it all just comes back to being ultra curious about the choices that they make and the different things that they, that they do. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a sucker for a good voice. Like in general, even outside of music, I think it's probably the like public speaker, public speaking coach in me, but nothing I love more than like a really good, unique sounding voice that's got enough breath behind it. And Charlie Berg's voice is out of this world. Like, yeah, that was, I think, you know, besides the sax solo <laughs> and all of the <laughs> bluesy vibes in this song, it's really Charlie Berg's voice that keeps me coming back to his music and yeah it was awesome to see him live because he did not disappoint like the voice is even better live that, i mean that usually happens like when you see someone like someone that you know has pipes but then you see them like 40 feet away using those pipes it's just like it's a sight to behold it's pretty special yeah. and for how long a concert is like for that many minutes your vocal instrument is holding up it sounds just as good at the end as it did at the beginning and I think this is probably a little bit of like, maybe envy is the right word, but I don't have a good voice. Like I can't sing. Hmm. I mean, I can sing, but it doesn't sound good. It's always gonna be off key, a little pitchy. It's just not a gift hmm. I was born with. And I think because of that, I like really, really appreciate people with incredible voices and I'm just awed by what they're able to do with that instrument. So that was probably the coolest part of the concert was just like, watching charlie bird cook yeah you know would, would admiration be a good word to use for that yeah i think that would be a great word i feel a lot of admiration not even just for vocals i think even for any sort of musicianship because i grew up taking piano lessons so i i can play piano i haven't played piano in a long time i was never great at it you know, I was fine. And then I taught myself really basic guitar chords in high school. So I think in general with musicians, it's a thing that I love so much that is not a strength of mine, which I think makes me like love it more. Yeah. You know? Yeah, because it's, it's a little elusive in a way. It's like, oh, I've, I've had a small taste of what that is and I know it's really, really good, but like I see you doing it and I, I get it. Like I kind of get how you're getting off on this, basically. It feels like magic to me. Like the friends and people I know who can just like hear a song once and then sit down at an instrument and recreate that song. Like, how does your brain work? Like, how do your, <laughs> how do your hands make these sounds? Um, meanwhile, I'm here just like still trying to remember what the melody even sounded like. And suddenly my friend is like banging out the whole thing on a piano, no problem. Um, so yeah, I'm just like super impressed by music in general. I think that's a large part of like why I'm a music fan. 
Um, yeah. It just it just feels like magic to me. I think that's why I enjoy it so much too. And I enjoy playing too. But like when you're just in front of somebody that you really appreciate and admire, and you know that they're very special at what they do. It's just like, this is truly a performance. Like this isn't just like a fun thing to dance to. It's like, you're doing something that's incredibly special and it's like not to be taken for granted. And it probably took a lot of time to become proficient in all those, like in singing, in playing a guitar, like whatever instrument, but also having musicianship and performanceship and like knowing when to like jump across the stage and like hitting the downbeat at this time and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And to be so in the moment, like that was at Charlie Burke's concert. I really got the sense that everybody on that stage was like fully present in the moment in the music that they were playing, which is really cool. It didn't feel like they were on autopilot, you know? And so then mm, as, yeah. as a member of the audience, it makes me feel super present and in the moment. Um, yeah which is really cool because as someone who my brain loves to like be in the future or in the past right like it's always thinking about something that happened or like planning for something ahead like my yes my daily yes. struggle is how do i actually stay in the moment and live music is one of the best ways i think to like anchor myself in the present moment um and charlie burke was just like very good at creating that atmosphere i think Another thing that I just want to share, and I don't know that I have the right language for this because I don't know a ton about music, but this album, Charlie Bird's album, Infinitely Tall, feels so impressive to me because it sounds like he's mixing so many different genres together. Like Blue Wave Blues mm. is incredible. We've got the sax, we've got a bluesy vibe. It feels kind of like a little like naughty, a little playful. Um, but you listen to the beginning of that album and it sounds like it should be a, a, like two different albums. Um, someone asked me the other day, like, oh yeah, you mentioned Charlie Berg. I'm going to like, look up his music. What does he sound like? And I was like, well, I think it's kind of like rock meets indie meets a little bit of pop meets some blues meets maybe Motown, like I just threw out like yeah. eight different genres because I hear all of those in this album and he somehow has put them together in a way that feels new and really unique to him, um, which is again, magic that I do not understand and cannot replicate. So I just buy the album and listen to it. Yeah, <laughs> no, but that, that makes so much sense. I find that I'm attracted to artists that do the same thing where they're like, yes, they may be really good at like one thing, love it great like i know what i'm gonna get from you like when you send out that next album in the fall i know it's gonna be great and it's gonna be like this but i am even more attracted and excited about artists that are shapeshifters that can be multiple things like all at the same time or have one song that's in this box and then two songs later they're entirely a different box and like the, the band that i mentioned before it's called snarky puppy they're a jazz fusion band they're like that, a combination of like funk, soul, but then like jazz, but then like jazz fusion. So like a little bit of kind of different kind of stuff, but then they have a lot of international band members. They have like a percussionist from Tokyo. They have a percussionist from, I think Marcelo's from Argentina, I want to say. So they have like, and then they play like the band leader, he lives in Spain, but um, plays a lot of like Moroccan instruments and like a Turkish guitar and stuff. And so it's like, it's world music at the same time, but then 
um, the newest album because they all went to the University of North Texas. They wanted to like pay tribute to Texas. So they have like a good old like Texas shuffle song that just rips. And so it's just like, I am so like curious and satisfied and excited about that band, but any other artist that does that, just like, here's your plate of food, we're gonna mix it all up and we're gonna see what we get. And I think that's just so rad. Yeah, Snarky Puppy you said? Yeah, I'll, I'll send you some of their stuff. I discovered them in like 2018 and I've been listening to them nonstop. I think I've seen them two or three. I think I've seen them three times. One of the times they, they do this special thing. And I know this is definitely a tangent. They do this special thing for some of their album recordings where they invite small audiences into the studio with headphones on that they're wearing. They did that in Dallas in March for the newest album that just came out two months ago. And I paid the pretty penny and drove up there for a Saturday night and sat in on one of their sessions. And so I was like, behind me was like my Grammy award winning keyboard pianist behind me and like the, the bassist to my left and like three guitars in the horn section, three full drum sets that were switching off in the middle of a song playing and then three percussionists like in the back right corner. So I was just in like this like cosmic soundscape of stuff that was blowing even just like recalling the experience right now is like getting me charged so i was yeah fortunate enough to do that they started their own music label they have a festival every, every single year in miami beach interestingly enough just bought a ticket for that so that's where we'll be the first weekend in february that sounds awesome i want to yeah. be in a studio space with headphones watching oh. a record. I will send you something for you and Chris to listen to because they um, they recorded, the video recorded all those, uh, not all the, I, actually, yeah, they recorded all the sessions from those from those nights that they did it. They did seven nights, two shows per night. So a total of 14. Um, so some of this, like the set that I sat in on, it's possible that one of those songs that I was there for made it on the album, but I don't know for sure. There's one song that I think did because I feel like I heard myself going in the back and it sounds like me, but I don't know. <laughs> Um, but for the ones that made on the album, they put those videos on YouTube. And so you can like see like people off like the 30, 40 people they let in the studio with the band, like, and it's, I'll send it to you. It's That's mystical. Amazing. I was just thinking about our love for like these sort of, I don't know if eclectic is the right word, but these really talented artists who can pull together all these different genres. Yeah. And I'm thinking about the three songs that I chose and it's, <laughs> It's interesting to me that my sort of like most recent choice, Charlie Berg, I think does that really, really well. But my first choice, Daddy Yankee, I mean, all of reggaeton, <laughs> I, I need a caveat as a, as a proud reggaeton fan to say that there's a lot of diversity in reggaeton, both like musically and lyrically. There's a, there's a mm -hmm. lot of good stuff. But if we're going to boil it down, every reggaeton song is like do, 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 do. It has like the same beat every yeah. single time, uh -huh. which I love. So it's interesting to me that there's like this side of me that wants genre mixing, eclectic, what feels like new sounds coming out of an artist. And then there's the part of me that's like, yeah, but I just want that same beat that I've been hearing since I was like a child. Yes. Right. Yes. That beat sounds like home. Give me any song with that beat. And I'm a fan. Exactly. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, I think it speaks to music being able to give you different experiences where listening to reggaeton, Daddy Yankee, Gasolina, it's emotionally stimulating because of the nostalgia and thinking of home and then thinking of Blue A Blues by Charlie Berg, who's mixing all these different genres. I would consider that to probably be a little more psychologically stimulating. 
because it gets you like thinking about the, the composition and like the particular instruments. Like you mentioned the sax a bunch. That is like getting you going in a very particular way. That's different, but also effective than how you're feeling emotionally about reggaeton. It comes at you from different angles, but still gives you incredible satisfaction and fills you up. Yeah. And then the way that I move is radically different. Bet like the way that I dance to gasolina and reggaeton versus the way that I move when I'm listening to Blue Wave Blues, it's like two completely different kinds of movement. And that's maybe... The other thing I should say about being a music fan is like, I love to dance. I will not say that I'm a good dancer, but I am an enthusiastic dancer. Hell yeah. And I spend a lot of my time at home. If I'm not like working, if I'm cooking or cleaning or I don't know, doing something and I have music on, I'm just, I'm dancing around the space, dancing around the kitchen. I'm dancing up and down yeah. the stairs. There's just like constant dancing happening. So that's also, a really big part of music for me is what sort of physical movements go along with songs. And so the way that I dance to Daddy Yankee versus Bo Burnham, if we can call it dancing, versus Charlie Berg, it's like <laughs> three different versions of Alex who comes out just based on whatever the music is that I'm listening to. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's expression. It's yeah. the expression of it. Yeah, like Blue Wave Blues is a lot. There's a lot of like slow, slinky movements in there. Like it's blues. Yeah, very like relaxed, but still rhythmic. Whereas reggaeton's a lot, a lot like harder, bigger movements that may probably make me look goofy. That's great. I will definitely be sending you some snarky puppy, particularly. Um, and I'll say one more comment about that live recording album. There are, I think I said like 18 or 19 members of the band. In the album or on the album, there are 16 songs. And the request from the band leader was that when everyone shows up to recording, they have to have one or two songs written or put together for the album to contribute. Typically, he writes most of the songs. He wrote four. I think that ended up being on the album, but the rest of them are written by different members of the band. And like I said, some of them are from halfway across the world. And so there's one, like the guy from Argentina, Marcelo, he has a song called Portal that is like one of the most beautiful songs ever. I will send that to you. The first 10 seconds is like sunshine on a beach. And then it just goes into this like very, very beautiful rhythm and very beautiful beat. I'm excited to send it to you so you can listen to it, check it out. I'm excited to see it. Cause I think that, you know, talking about like good music feels like magic and I'm in awe of anybody with musical skill. The like behind the scenes stuff is some of my favorite, especially in the 21st century, I think we have so much more access to and so much yeah. more like video content of musicians doing stuff. Like part of what really made me love Charlie Burke as an artist is that on YouTube, there's a bunch of videos of him from when he was younger, either alone in a room playing every single instrument and recording the singing for a song or him and like two friends from whatever music or art school he went to recording an early version of the song. And same with Bo, you get inside gives you this inside look into the making yeah. of the album so i'm also a sucker i think for like any sort of behind the scenes content that lets me watch an artist work or lets me watch an artist grow over time um i'm fascinated by the creative process 
And so at least two of the three songs that I chose really come from artists who I think like let us into their creative process or at least let us witness it more. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's, and it's it, yeah, like you said, it's very fascinating to see the making of and like the choices they made and how they got to creating what they created. It's super cool. Yeah, like, oh, there's a reason that you decided the solo should last that amount of time or like there's a reason that instrument comes in at second 42 and not second 22. Right. And even like to take that further, deciding if they will write the solo or if the person doing the solo can improv and just and just go and just just off the top and yeah. just do it. I think that's interesting too. I'm thinking about now all of the people in my life who are musicians or like, I think I'm using that word really generously, people who play music. But when I think about it, I have sort of like surrounded myself always with people who deeply love music or who play an instrument or two. And I wonder how much of that is me selfishly just like wanting to be around more music. Um, but you know, like my husband, Chris has a really beautiful singing voice and he can play guitar and piano. And so now I live in a house where I hear someone playing piano and singing live every day just for fun. Um, my, well, I have five siblings, but the brother who's closest to me in age plays guitar and mm -hmm. he plays like classic Spanish guitar, but he also does a lot of like improv jazz. I mean, he's going to listen to this and be like, you totally did not describe. <laughs> but whatever. He's like a really talented musician. Yeah. <laughs> and so when I go home and he's like, oh, I'm just going to like whip out the guitar and improv some music for like 20 minutes because I do this every day as a practice. I'm like, great. Now I just get to sit and listen to this. Like what a what a joy. Yeah. That's a treat. I should probably try to play music again. Just just for fun. Just for me. I think you should. I think you and Chris should play music together. I think that's that would be awesome. The problem there is he's so much more talented than I am. You know, there's just like a real big gap. So what? When it comes to just being at home with your partner and playing music, expectation goes out the window and it's just for fun. Mistakes are right. welcome. Yeah. yeah, if it's just us and our dog as the audience. Yeah, yeah, cares. Cares. Okay, great, I'm gonna try that this week. I'll let you know how it goes. Please, yeah, keep me, I would, I would, I wanna hear it. We could just keep this conversation going for several hours, but let's tie a bow on this. Let's do what we did last time, opening it up to you. So anything, that you're currently excited about that you'd like to share or any words of wisdom that you want to impart on the listeners? Okay, I'm gonna do exactly what I did the first time we recorded this and do both. Um, so words of wisdom. Words of wisdom are so tough because I'm gonna say my words of wisdom and they've really helped me in my life. And I think some people will listen to it and be like, that's useless. But maybe there's one person who will listen to this and be like, I needed to hear that today, thank you. Yes. Um, so as cheesy as it sounds, I think my words of wisdom is really, I think more people could follow their curiosity. I really believe that so much of my professional life, but even my personal life, all of the good things that have happened or like opportunities I've stumbled into or passions I have discovered, all of that comes from the moments that I said yes to my curiosity. Like, oh, I was working at Google and like advertising sales and account management. I didn't like the day-to-day -day job, but who doesn't like working at a great company that gives you great benefits? 
And there was a really like pivotal moment in my life where I was like, I don't want to sell ads forever. And I actually don't know that I even really want to work in tech. What do I want to do? I've always been curious about language and communication and how like sticky and difficult interpersonal communication can be sometimes. So I was like, well, that's what I'm curious about. Let me just follow that curiosity. And I went and got a master's degree. And then that turned into working on getting a PhD and discovering that like actually teaching and writing and research is like this huge passion of mine that I didn't know about. So I don't know. I feel like another way to say this would be you want to get more in touch with like your inner voice and and what your internal self wants. But I just think more people should try their hardest to release external expectations and find the curiosity inside of you that gets excited about stuff and wants to know more about stuff and just like follow that energy and see where it takes you because it's brought me to some really wonderful places and makes me feel like very happy and fulfilled day to day. It's okay to be curious and it should be a strong signal if you're curious about something like follow that. And then I, I don't know if this is a plug, but if any of your listeners are interested in personality or personality assessments, my whole dissertation is about sort of the, the rhetoric or the language of personality and the way that we're using personality assessments now, primarily in the workplace, but also just in like personal life. So if anybody has taken an assessment they really love or they really hate, they should contact me because I'm always looking for more personality assessments. Um, and always looking for more people to talk to who have found some like really cool insights through that or have been like really disappointed and maybe bored or uncomfortable by personality assessments. So either extreme, they should talk to me. Yeah, and it's there are so many different experiences with assessments. They can go so many different ways. So yeah, yeah. And there's so many different kinds of assessments. Yeah. like. There are ones that are made to figure out if you are a good fit for the role you've just been hired for. And there are others that are not based on any scientific data, but end up giving somebody like direction in their life or advice for interpersonal relationships. So it's, the whole space is really fascinating to me. And there's just like dozens, if not hundreds of assessments out there. So I always want to know what are people using and and has it been useful or did it feel silly? Okay, I wanna ask one question on that. Do you consider, and this might be shots fired for some of the listeners out there, do you consider astrology to be a form of an assessment? I'm so glad you asked this question. <laughs> I think the way that astrology is being used right now makes it more of a personality tool than it used to be. So like it's not an assessment in the sense that like I'm you there's no test you can take that tells you what your sign is right like you're you you just have to look up your chart right. so the sort of assessment piece like me answering questions about what I think I'm like that's not part of it but if you look at co-star sanctuary the pattern the Chani app all of these apps and businesses are like providing resources that people are using 
to navigate their lives, like to make decisions about their lives, mm -hmm. right? So astrology was not created as a personality framework, but whenever I talk about astrology with people, what we're really talking about is personality, right? They'll yeah. be like, oh, I mean, you know how she is. She's such a Leo. Or like, I went on a date with this guy. Can you pull up his chart real quick? And then I find that he has like a moon in Gemini and you also have a moon in Gemini. And that means that your emotional selves are probably like really similar. So astrology is bogus, right? In the sense that the stars don't actually determine anything about our lives. But I'm fascinated by the way that we've like taken astrology and the way we use signs and all of the sort of adjectives that go with each sign to describe who we are, to read other people, to explain why this relationship works and this relationship doesn't work. And that's actually where my dissertation started. I found that I was having a lot of conversations with people who were like, I don't understand why you're interested in astrology. It's so bogus and it's made up. And my response is like, how are you not interested in this? You don't think it's fascinating that thousands of people have taken this made up framework and are spinning it into daily advice, relationship decisions, career decisions. Like there's something of value in astrology. Like a lot of people seem to have found value in this framework. So whether it's real or not, however made up it is, people are still using it and they're getting something out of it. And that's what I'm interested in is like, what are we getting out of these frameworks? What makes us want to use them in this way. Astrology is not a personality framework, but it's certainly being used like one. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a business. It's a, it's a big business at this point. Even for those of us, right? Like I have like the group chat, like my girlfriend group chat. And sometimes if you get like a particularly ridiculous or hard to understand co-star horoscope, like we'll screenshot it, throw it in the chat. I'll be like, what does this mean? So even when we're making fun of it, we're still talking about it. Exactly. I think in some ways it's like a, a tool for self-discovery. Like people like they'll turn to their chart. Like, oh, I haven't checked out my chart in a while. I haven't read my horoscope in a while. It's like, I'm looking to feel grounded to like learn about my habits. Like why am I this kind of partner? Why are my reactions like this? Why am I leading with this kind of intensity over small things or, or whatever? It helps give, get some answers to people. Yeah, it's like one tool in a toolbox. And I think you could put a lot of, there's a lot of other tools in that toolbox. Like a lot of the times the way that I see people using astrology feels therapy adjacent mm -hmm. because right. The questions you just posed, like, why am I leading with this? Or why am I acting or reacting this way? Um, so it's one of multiple tools. And even if we think about personality assessments, that are grounded in like scientific method and observation. So Myers-Briggs is not one of them, but like the big five or StrengthsFinder, even those that are like based in scientific method, the majority of the work is still interpretation. Like you still have to take yeah. the results they give you, figure out how they apply to your life and how they make sense as a researcher. I care less about the actual tool you're using in that toolbox. And I care more about how you're using it. And astrology 
and the big five and all these personality assessments are being used in the same way. We're doing the same kind of like interpretation to try to understand our lives and make decisions. That's what I'm fascinated by. So like, I don't care what tool you're using, you're using multiple tools in the same way. And it's the way that you're using that tool. That's what I want to study. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, it does. It does. And then the way they carry themselves after it, how they live their lives based off the information that they got from it and then interpreted. I mean, you think about like extrovert and introvert took up so much like cultural space, right? I feel like in the past like decade or two, we've seen so many articles or think pieces that are like introverts make better leaders or extroverts or this and whatever. Um, and there are people who their the definition of who they are, their idea of who they are changes the minute that they get a result that's like, actually, you're more introverted than you thought you yeah. were, or you're more extroverted than you thought you were. These like abstract ideas or these assessments that feel silly, I think actually end up like becoming a large part of who we are. I always score as a really high extrovert because in a social situation, I will always be one of the most extroverted people in the room. It's my personality. Yeah. I'm gonna talk to the person in the corner by themselves. I'm gonna be really social and gregarious, but internally, I actually feel a lot more introverted and that doesn't get reflected in assessments because the assessment is not measuring how I feel on the inside. It's measuring how I act out in the world. Yeah, it's just an ongoing discovery. And there's different lenses that you look through too, like you said, with walking out in the world and like how you present, but also how you feel on the inside. So it's so many different versions of it to think about. If anybody is listening to this and they have thoughts or questions about personality or what it means to be an extrovert or why astrology feels so popular right now, they should reach out to me because I love talking about this stuff. Awesome. Well, Alex... Thank you so much. This was a wonderful second conversation. I wish I could have gotten the first one. No offense to us, about a, six weeks ago, I felt like this was pretty fantastic. And I love this conversation. I am so happy to hear that. Thank you again for having me. I think even more fun the second time. I appreciate you and thank you. Thank you. This is lovely.